0: Well, we live and move and have our being in a certain time and cultural context. When we spend most of our lives in a Western, modern or postmodern modern um, context, there are a whole lot of values and beliefs that go hand in hand with that. It is the air that we breathe. And it's very difficult to get our heads, our hearts and, and our sort of gut instincts out of our context and into another. And today, as has been mentioned, we're attempting to get our heads, our hearts and our gut instincts into the topic of science. Now, theology and science done well are complementary because we're reading God's word and God's world and they go together. So my first point is that there is no war between science and faith. When I went through school, there was a sense that science and faith were in opposition to one another. And it went something like this. Um, Christianity is interested in maintaining its shrinking power on the earth. and, And Christians are a bit afraid of new discoveries that may sort of disprove God or undermine the church's power. Whereas science, well, that's a pure, rational, unbiased exploration of the universe. Science is the the good guy that will dispense with the superstition of old religion. And then I heard of Johannes Kepler. And listen to this paragraph from the Encyclopedia Britannica. At the beginning of the 17th century, the German astronomer Johannes Kepler placed the Copernican hypothesis on firm astronomical footing. Converted to the new astronomy as a student and deeply motivated by a Neo-Pythagorean desire for finding the mathematical principles of order and harmony according to which God had constructed the world, Kepler spent his life looking for simple mathematical relationships that described planetary motions. Um, Now, bypassing all the technical talk, Kepler was looking for how God had constructed things with order and harmony um, And to see what God had done. So in my words, Kepler wanted to see God's fingerprints. The evidence of God's work in creation. In the ordering of the planets and and the other things moving about in space. And so I was delighted to learn that there is no real war between science and Christianity. Both are interested in truth. Both are pleased to discover the truth. And they go hand in hand like peas and carrots. So Kepler became something of one of my heroes. Um, This Kepler too, but um, that's another comment. Um, Kepler said that scientific research and ideas and discoveries were thinking God's thoughts after him. They were thinking God's thoughts after him. Isn't that beautiful? So my second point today is scientific truth points to God. Let's go back to the very beginning. In the beginning... God. Christians have always believed that God existed before anything was made. There's always been a firm belief that God was the one who spoke and creation came into being. God created everything, ex nihilo, Uh, God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing and then God created. God made it all and as we heard time and time again, it was good. By contrast, until last century, many non-Christian scientists have believed that the universe was static, that it had no beginning and would have no end. As far back as Aristotle, 350 years before Jesus, Aristotle believed that the universe was not only old, but that it had always existed. Albert Einstein and, and many other scientists believed that the universe was static, they hypothesised that the stars, the planets, the galaxies were orbiting around doing their thing within a, an absolutely enormous field but that field was always the same size. That that box or oval or football shape, whatever it was, was static. Now, to their credit, when the scientists identified the truth they caught up with Christian belief. Now... Bear with me a little bit as I geek out and explain a little bit of the shift in science. Um, do you know the Doppler effect? Have you ever listened to a racing car going past? As, as the car comes towards you, the sound is, is high-pitched. It goes, me, and then as it goes past you and, and, and moves away from you, it, the sound drops lower. So it goes, Um So that's called the Doppler effect. On screen, I've got a good illustration of it. So, sound waves are like the waves made by movement on a pond. As a duck moves forward, the waves in front that it's causing are closer together and the waves behind it are spread out. So when a car is moving rapidly closer to you, the waves reach your ears more closely together and it sounds higher. And when the car's moving rapidly away from you, the waves reach your ears more slowly, and it sounds lower. Now, you might be surprised to hear that a similar thing happens with light. The light rays are bunched closer together when the light source is coming towards us. And the light rays are spread further apart when the light source is moving away from us. Now, a change in frequency with sound means a change of pitch, higher or lower. And a change in frequency with light means a change of colour. A higher frequency with sound means a higher pitch, and a lower frequency with sound means a lower pitch. But a higher frequency of waves with light means a shift in a blue direction, and a lower frequency means a shift in the red direction. So if you look at this spectrum, kind of like a cut out of a side of a rainbow, um, then you can see that... At the blue end of the spectrum, there's a higher frequency of the light waves. And at the red end, there's a lower frequency. When you look at the stars at night, you cannot tell with your naked eyes that the light is a slightly different colour. But scientists with the right equipment can tell. And it turns out that almost every star in the universe is red-shifted. Almost every star is moving away from us. And so scientists, last century, they came to the conclusion that we don't actually live in a static universe. We live in an expanding universe. Many years ago, they hypothesised that all of the stars and the planets were a lot closer together. And and many, many years before that, uh, they were even a lot closer together, crammed together, and they sort of exploded out. And so scientists figured out what Christians had always believed, that the universe had a beginning. God spoke and bang, everything came to be. Uh, John Lennox says, The idea of a Big Bang is a point of concern for some people who have been influenced by Richard Dawkins' um, simplistic insistence on our choosing either science or God. However, these are false alternatives on the same level as insisting that we choose between Henry Ford and a car production line to explain the origin of a Ford Galaxy. The fact is that both of these explanations are necessary. They do not contradict each other, but complement each other. Henry Ford is the agent who designed the car, and the car production line is the mechanism by which it is manufactured. Similarly, we do not have to choose between God and the Big Bang, They are different kinds of explanation. One in terms of God's agency to create and the other in terms of mechanism and laws. A fellow called Arno Penzias won a Nobel Prize for physics for discovering a kind of an echo of the Big Bang out in the universe. And he wrote this. He said, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on except the Bible." The best data that we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on except the Bible. Penzias and many other scientists see a great harmony between reading the world that God has made and reading the word that God has given us. So my third point is God knows best how our planet works. So far, I've only ventured four words into Genesis chapter 1. And I'm now going to sweep through the first chapter of Genesis and see God's process in creation. So Genesis 1, notice here that God is present throughout the creating process. And the Spirit of God hovers over the waters in that special place that we now inhabit. And God doesn't just speak and and bang, an unpredictable mad mess occurs. No, God speaks again and again and again, bringing order god is a god of order the whole creation process brings order from chaos in that hebrew way of seeing the world darkness and unpredictable waters are chaotic god in verse 3 creates light he brings order to the chaotic darkness in verse 6 god separates and orders the unpredictable waters In verse 9, God separates the waters and the land. Verse 11, God causes vegetation to come forth, and the vast array of plants are ordered according to their kinds. In verse 14, God orders the sky, the space, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars to give rhythm and order to all creation. In verse 20, God created living creatures which are ordered according to their kinds. Birds, fish, and other sea creatures. What are the teams with life? In verse 24, God created living creatures, ordered according to their kinds on the earth. Now, the orderliness of God's creation doesn't just come through in the book of Genesis, but all the way through the Bible. In John's magnificent prologue, he tells of the word of God. Words are the way that we make sense of life, the universe and everything. God's divine word is Jesus. And it's through the word of God that we truly make sense of life. The word is also the light and life of our lives. Through the word, all things were made and nothing was made outside of the word. Like the Genesis account, we see the light dispelling the darkness. Uh, But this time, the light comes into the world in a special way, in Jesus' made flesh. There was an order that he went about in his ministry too. He came to his own, to the Jewish people, but they didn't receive him. But to anyone who did receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. genesis 1 continuing at verse 26 god created humanity the first children in his image you and i are created in god's image we are his special creation male and female both in the image of god and then his mandate to us is to continue bringing order to chaos we are to rule over the fish, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals and the creatures that move on the ground. And he expands on that mandate in the verses that follow our reading, saying that we are blessed, that we are to increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now sometimes people misinterpret God's mandate for us to subdue the earth and have dominion over it as meaning exploiting the planet and endless consuming to meet our own needs and fancies. But that isn't what God is saying. And it's bad science. As we now all know, constantly taking from the earth and exploiting it can, could lead to us destruction. God has called us to steward God's creation in a godlike way, bringing order out of chaos. And he gives us examples of bringing life-giving order and rhythm in the natural world. On the seventh day, God brought more order. He created the Sabbath, a day of rest, of worship and enjoyment. So how does God, knowing best, apply to us? Well, let's take agriculture for an example. A farmer could, plant, uh, could farm in an unbiblical, unscientific way and plant the same crops year after year in the same fields. And they would find that those crops draw out the same minerals and vitamins, fertilizer, etc. And that soil would become depleted. By the third season of, of wheat cropping in the same land, the crop will be less bountiful. It will be more diseased, weaker, a fragile crop. Or this farmer can give the land a Sabbath, leaving it fallow. Or planting a different crop like corn, beans, or canola. And then the soil is enriched and the crops become healthier. They're more resistant to bugs and diseases and are healthier for those who eat them. So applying to us, people who only read their Bible for knowledge will struggle to do well. People who only read the book of the world, science, will struggle to live in harmony with God, other people, and the land. But people who read the Bible and science will be all the richer for it. For example, far too many people just keep plodding away in life, never taking a Sabbath. Those who take good time off, who worship God, who get into deep relationships with God and other people are much better off. We are better off thinking of our mandate as helping to bring order to chaos, helping to steward God's creation, taking care of it. Preserving, maintaining, and enjoying it as an example of God's generous provision for us. The fourth point is: is science arose in a Christian context by Christian thinkers? In the book that we're basing this series on, *The Air We Breathe*, the author Scrivener makes a convincing, well-researched case for the development of modern science through faithful Christians. Who sought to think God's thoughts after him? He said, Modern science was invented nowhere else but among devout Christians in a devoutly Christian age, drawing explicitly on Christian beliefs and practice. And I thoroughly recommend you get the book and read it for yourself, it goes into a lot more detail. Now, the birth of modern science was in the Middle Ages. And this time, Christian thinking centred around the concept of of the two books, the book of God, Scripture, and the book of nature, the universe. The only libraries and and scholars were in the monasteries, uh, the clergy, the monks and the nuns. And these Christian people were interested in finding the evidence of God's work in the world, thinking God's thoughts after him. And they rightly believed that since God created and sustains everything, we ought to find His fingerprints in everything. And this birth, the, the pursuit of science. Theology was actually seen as the queen of sciences, because the Bible was seen as the source of all truth. Theology became the natural standard by which other scholarship had to abide. The Bible says things like the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The heavens, the skies, the universe, well, they didn't just appear on their own. There's an incredible mind, a personality, a being behind the universe who created and sustains it. And we know that being as the Lord, as Jesus, as God. There is a perception that still continues in some areas that Christianity and science are in opposition to one another. However, Scrivener makes a very good case that Christianity was the fertile ground in which science emerged. Science emerged within the Christian world because Christians believe that God made a creation that has order, that that we have the capacity to reach some level of understanding of the order of the things that he's made and that God invited us to participate in ordering the things that he'd made. The foundation of modern science sits on what Einstein said was a miracle. He said, the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. That it is comprehensible is a miracle. Imagine this little amount of grey matter having some sort of understanding of the universe. It's Miraculous. In Genesis, we learn that we are made in the image of God. The ability to consider and comprehend our place in the universe is one of the gifts of God, making us in his image, that makes this understanding possible. It was Christians who developed the scientific method because they could see how, as humans, we constantly fall prey to our own biases. How did Christians come to this? Well, by looking at our fallen nature. We see that first with Adam and Eve. And as the physicist Richard Feynman says, the first principle of science is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Adam and Eve fooled themselves into thinking that they could fool God. And ever since, we've been very tempt- tempted to do the same thing. And so early Christian scientists developed open debate, peer review, and double-blind methods which, as the psychologist Stephen Pinker says, are designed to circumvent the sins to which scientists are vulnerable. So, for instance, how do we know that penicillin is useful in fighting a range of bacterial infections rather than just... Alexander Fleming fooling himself and the world that his mouldy petri dishes were meaningful was because of repeated trials of penicillin's effectiveness that was carried out. And that was because the scientific method arose from Christians looking at God's word and realising that humans have a great capacity for self-deception. And so they came up with more objective methods for demonstrating truth. So today... When we trust medicine to help deal with our health or we trust agriculture to help feed the world or we trust engineering to help us fly around the world, we are trusting in a fruit of the Jesus revolution. Science isn't perfect. It's performed by broken, vulnerable people. But with the highly Christianly influenced scientific method, our scientific knowledge is continually being refined. And we're able to give up incorrect ideas and replace them with corrected, nuanced, improved ideas. So I hope that you can see that theology plus science done well are complementary. This is true because the same author wrote both God's word and spoke his word, world into being. They complement each other. So Romans 1 verse 20 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. So of course we can see God's fingerprints in the world that he's made. And of course we can see God's mark left in creation and that that is in complete harmony with the word he has spoken to us. So praise the Lord who has made all things well. Amen.